All right, so with that being said, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 28. Let's, uh, let's hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, uh, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. Then as it looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron Claws of bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end of the kingdom 
and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we love your word. We pray that you would continue to give us an understanding of it, particularly in these more difficult passages and these dreams and visions that aren't always fully explained for us. We pray that you would continue to uh, help us to grapple with the truth that is, is lying directly underneath all of these details. We pray, Lord, that we would trust you, trust you for our past, trust you for our present, trust you for our future, knowing that you are indeed the God who reigns over all of these things and who lays them out before even one of them comes to be. We praise your name and we submit ourselves to your holy will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the church of St. Pierre in Geneva, Switzerland, it's the same church that John Calvin preached at on a regular basis, uh, at one time there were a number of bells in the church tower that rang for various occasions. The largest of these bells was called La Clemence, or Mercy. So it's the Mercy Bell, if you will. It was commissioned by a Catholic bishop uh, in Geneva about a century prior to the time John Calvin began to preach uh, the gospel. So it was about 1407 when these were originally uh, given to the church. And at the bottom of it, there was a Gothic inscription written on the base of the bell that described her responsibilities from her perspective, if you will. She, the bell is, saying, I praise the, the true God. I summon the people. I weep for the dead. I chase away the plague. My voice strikes terror in all demons. Now, that sounds good, and much of it is true, but there's also some little strange things about it, too, in that regard. Catholic theology, they often ascribe spiritual power to objects in the church, whether it's a cross or holy water or bells or something of that nature, uh, in the sense that these things in and of themselves would ward off evil, right? Of course, we know that holy water doesn't actually hurt vampires. We get this, right? Uh, we often have heard about this. Uh, holy water has no power to do anything like that whatsoever. Uh, wearing a cross around your neck does not protect you from evil. You can have ten crosses around your neck. It doesn't increase your chances of safety. Okay, that's one thing I need you to know. All right. But the, the, the point behind it is that God can do these things, right? That's what we're saying. Uh, and ultimately, that's what we need to understand from this passage as well is that God is the one who delivers us from evil. Not some object, not some trinket that you could buy at a Christian bookstore or what have you, but God is the one who delivers us from evil precisely for the very reason that he is the one who leads us into those places and times of evil, right? Why do we pray, lead me not into temptation? Lead us not into temptation. Because God is the one who at times does lead us into temptation for various reasons. We're asking him not to. Why? Because we know our flesh is weak right? But we also pray that if that be your will, Lord, you're going to lead us into that time of trial, that place of temptation. Deliver us when we're in the midst of it. Give us that way of escape so that we can stand up under it, if you will. Uh, so as a result, it's the same way in this scripture passage. You have to understand that everything that's about to happen to the saints of God throughout the world is still at God's behest. 
God is the one who is stirring up the waters. This is not a coup, if you will, by the evil forces on earth to try to take over God. I mean, it may be from their perspective, but God is the one who is stirring up the waters for them to come up in the first place. He's the one who has elevated these kings, given them their power, given them their reign. So this is not a shock to him whatsoever, nor is it against his holy, sovereign will, at least in one sense of the of the term. So he's, he's using all of this for a purpose, and what we'll find out throughout the Old Testament and in the New, oftentimes when he raises up these really evil people, it's to bring judgment against other evil people, right? There's not a single innocent person that, that, that is taken out under these men that is in some way uh, also uh, accused of sin. And that's what, again, that's what we learned from Habakkuk in, in the, the sermon last week. But anyway, last week we began to look closely at Daniel's dream that the Lord had given him while he was asleep in his bed, right? And while he was there sleeping and, and dreaming, uh, he, he quickly realized this dream was more of a nightmare. He saw these four terrifying beasts coming up out of the sea, one after the other, and each one of them were basically given the responsibility of conquering the world in some sense or another. And we're told later on that each one of these evil monsters, if you will, represent kings and kingdoms that are going to conquer the world. So it's, it's not meant to be interpreted literally. And I, I'll say this probably a thousand times throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. This is not meant to be interpreted literally. There's not going to be a Godzilla coming out of the water ready to attack Japan. There's not going to be some King Kong monster that's coming to New York City and is going to hurt us in some way. It has nothing to do with some literal interpretation, but rather this is all spiritually interpreted. It's figurative in nature. So a number of times the prophets are referring to God bringing the four winds of heaven in judgment against particular nations at particular times. But at one point, he's saying this is going to happen to all the nations of the world. There's going to be the four winds of heaven are stirring up judgment against all the evil throughout the world, right? So depending upon uh, if he's, again, speaking of that figuratively, all throughout the world, does that mean Every single town at every time, not necessarily. Again, we're speaking figuratively here. But rather, we know that God is, is doing this. But nevertheless, it's surprising for Daniel. And the reason why it's surprising for him is because he was led to believe, based upon his reading of Jeremiah, that there was going to be a golden age after this 70 years of exile. He had come to the understanding that they're going to, Israelites were going to return uh, to the promised land, God was going to raise up the Messiah King, and they were going to live for many years in peace under this new king. But the timing is not right. And so now God, through these visions, through these dreams, is helping Daniel and all of God's people to see that instead there, there's going to be many years in which God's people are going to be under the yoke of various pagan kingdoms. And last week we said that the first beast that we saw in this particular passage, the lion with the eagle's wings, represents King Nebuchadnezzar and all the Babylonian kings who would come after him. But he was the one who was like a man who had wings and then uh, with all the feathers on his arms, etc., eventually was plucked off. And as a result, he comes to his senses. That, that if you go back and you look at that, that's what it seems to be saying. The second beast, which takes the place of the first beast, this lopsided bear, we we're saying one side is higher than the other, uh, represents the Medo-Persian Empire that takes out the Babylonians. And again, Understand that Daniel is still in the Babylonian Empire when this vision is given to him. So he thinks that the first enemy is about to die and then he's going to go home. No, there's a much terrible monster that's coming that's going to take out this first one. 
But then after that, he sees a third creature coming up like a leopard uh, with four heads and four wings on its back. And we see that it's very swift to take out everything in its path, right? And again, we said that that represents most likely the, the kingdom of the Greeks or the, the Hellenistic Empire, if you will. And so at the end of that, we see with the four heads and the four wings, it's uh, Alexander the Great who begins this movement, if you will, is replaced by four lesser men who become uh, part, uh, they reign in four different segments or four different regions of the empire, and they, they continue on the Greek empire for about 200 years, okay? And then finally, we get to a, a fourth creature. This is in verse 7. We read that the fourth creature is terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, more than any beast prior that he has seen. And its teeth are, are great, its great iron teeth are in his mouth. And, and, and we, we know that, again, we're comparing this vision to the vision that was given earlier on in chapter 2. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue, and you see first the gold head, and then the silver arms and, and, and chest, and then you have the, the bronze torso, and then you have the the iron legs and then a mixture of iron and clay feet. Uh, again, it's the same concept. We're going down to the fourth kingdom and now we're seeing this iron teeth in its mouth and he's stomping everything in its path seemingly with iron, right? So it's just taking out everything in its path. It seems like it's another rendition, if you will, of the same kingdom. But unlike the previous kingdoms, here Daniel can't compare the fourth beast to a, a creature he's used to seeing. Right? Every other beast, he's, it's kind of like a, a lion, it's got wings though, or it's like a leopard. This one, he can't compare it to anything he's ever seen. It's very unique. In fact, a number of times in this passage, he keeps saying, it's different. It's different. It's different. Verse 7, verse 19, verse 23, verse 24, again and again and again, he tells us it's totally different than anything he's, he's seen. The only description that is given of it, we don't know what it looks like or what shape it takes, is that somehow it has ten horns. But not for long. As he's watching this creature come up out of the sea with his ten horns, all of a sudden he sees one little horn pop up, and now three horns are breaking off and ripping off the, the head or the side or the back of this creature. We don't know. And as a result, it now has less horns, right? And somehow this little horn is now lifted up, and we see that it has eyes like the eyes of a man and, and a mouth that speaks great things. So this time, instead of being compared to some other uh, beast of the earth, this one's being somewhat compared to a man. He has eyes and he has a, a voice, if you will, that can speak in, in the normal sense of things. But when it says he speaks great things, what it means is that he's boasting, and he's boasting greatly. This is a very arrogant creature. Now, are you ready to hear about the identity of this fourth creature? I'm sorry, we're not going to do that now. Because Daniel moves on to something else entirely. He immediately goes to verse 9. He doesn't bother to tell us anything about this creature. We don't know what it is at this point. But suddenly he's transported in his dream. He's, he, originally he was on the shores of, of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, if you will. He's on the shores of the Great Sea. Uh, but now, instead, he is suddenly transported, if you will, in what looks to be the courts of heaven, right? Uh, what looks to be some heavenly place. But at first, it, it, it's as if... He sees an empty room, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, a, th a throne shows up, and then boom, another throne, and then another throne, and then another. So all these thrones are just coming out of nowhere, landing, if you will, on the floor of this place, and he sees all of this, and he's wondering what's going on, 
right? At first it wasn't a courtroom, but now a courtroom just appears before his eyes in some sort of seemingly heavenly place, if you will. And, and as a result, uh, it's, he's not saying, if some of your texts, if, if you have the King James, it may it look as if, he's tear, as if God is tearing down the thrones of these other kingdoms. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's throwing down thrones quickly because God is about to enter into judgment quickly. That's his intention here. That's the way it's meant to be interpreted. Now, now, again, keep in mind, I'm going to reiterate this. Is this supposed to be interpreted literally? No, right? It's very important that we get this because he's about to describe some things that's going to lead us all to being heretics if we interpret it literally. So be very careful. We're not meant to interpret this literally. Now, in this particular case, we see a couple of figures, right? But before we see those figures, basically see a bunch of thrones. In the middle of these thrones, we see one throne that stands out from all the others because it's on fire right? When you think of heaven, do you think of a throne constantly being on fire? Literally, that's not the case. He's speaking figuratively to say something about the person who sits on that throne. The, the throne is continually burning, right? And uh, notice the title, verse 9, refers to the figure who's going to sit on this throne as the Ancient of Days. He's described sort of like an old man, but not a frail or decrepit man, but rather a very stately figure who seems like he's lived forever. The only description we have of this person is that he has hair that's white, as white as wool, and he's got clothes, again, that seem just overly bright beyond imagination, right? Um, but no, again, this figure is not a literal interpretation of anything that we're seeing, but something that's symbolic. It's meant to show us something of the person who's sitting on this throne. By logical deduction, Based upon what this figure does and what this figure says, it seems plain to most people that we're talking about who? God. God the Father, right? But that leads us to a potential problem if you try to interpret this literally, because is God an old man? Well, the Mormons would have you believe that he is, right? Because they're misinterpreting Scripture. They literally believe that who they call Heavenly Father is an old man with white hair who used to be a man who's now elevated to a demagogue kind of status who literally sits on a throne in heaven right now physically and this is what he looks like, okay? That's not what the scripture is teaching here at all. In fact, it's very, very, very rare that there's any sort of description of anything in reference to God and for good reason because God does not have a body like men. He's using figurative language to describe something of his character, something of his work, and what he's doing at this particular moment. But again, the Mormons and others who try to interpret this literally, ignoring hundreds and hundreds of Scripture passages throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, they make this very plain that this is a figurative representation of the invisible God. A spirit who does not have a body like man, who's eternal, unchangeable in every way. Okay? In a similar passage in the book of Ezekiel, the very first chapter, uh, again, Ezekiel takes great pains to say in his vision, he sees what looks like a throne. He's not saying he actually sees a throne. He says what looks like a throne. And what looks like a throne is a person who's sitting on this throne, looks like a man. But not given any sort of uh, description of what this man looks like, but his glory is overwhelming, but yet he still looks like a man in some sense to him. He's supposed to represent something of the likeness and glory of men, but yet overwhelmed by this divine glory. Let, let me put it this way. 
in the Holy of Holies, you know, in the temple, when the priest, the high priest goes from, you know, at the outside of the courts into the inner side of the, the, the tabernacle or the temple, and then he goes to the holy place, and then he goes into the Holy of Holies. What's back there? Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to represent God's throne, right? It's, it's actually called God's throne. Now, what do you find on top of God's throne in the center? No. They're on the sides. If you're talking about the cherubim, the angels, they're on the sides, right? They're framing the Ark of the Covenant, but they're not in the center of the covenant. They're looking toward the center of the covenant to the one who sits on the throne. Now, what's in the center of the throne right above the Ark? Yes. What's on top of the mercy seat? Nothing. It's very important we get this. Nothing. Why? Because God is not to be depicted in any form or fashion, in any man, beast, anything else of that nature. He's not to be depicted in this way. If God is giving us some likeness of him in some random, strange, weird, apocalyptic vision, you should know this is not normal. Okay? There's never to be any image of God that's ever depicted. Kids, I told you last week, right? If any of you drew a picture of one of these weird, random beasts, awesome. I saw someone on the board in the classroom drew some, looks like a Godzilla kind of thing. It's kind of cool. If you did it, great. One thing you'll never hear me say is draw a picture of God. Why? Second commandment and the Ten Commandments. You're not to make any image, any likeness of God in any form or fashion on earth or in heaven or in the sea, nothing. Because we all have a tendency to make God into our own image, what we want him to be rather than the way he's actually revealed himself to us, right? So it's very important that we get this. What Ezekiel and what Daniel are seeing here are not mirror images of God. They're describing something that's meant to help us understand from God's perspective, something of who this person is, something of his character, something of what his works are, are, what he's doing. So God is showing us something about this courtroom scene, if you will. And in this courtroom scene, in contrast to the other kings and kingdoms that arise out of the water, who has a kingdom for a period of time, then it is immediately replaced by another kingdom. He's now showing us a picture of a king who's never replaced. He has white hair. He's a very stately figure to show, to show he's been there forever. He will never be replaced. You follow me? This is all symbolic. This is meant to be interpreted symbolically. And in the same way, this throne that is on fire and fire is emanating from it, wherever it goes, again, showing something of his wrath, his hot anger against sin, as well as his purity, this deep-seated purity that, that flows out of him. It is who he is in his character, but also every work that he performs is also pure and holy in every way. But then you'll notice, if you noticed, there's also wheels on the throne. Did you notice that? And the wheels also are on fire. It's a pretty scary image here, right? Why? Why does it have wheels on it? Are, are you used to seeing, you go in a castle, do you ever see wheels on the thrones in those castles? No. But in ancient times, most kings would have a, what was called a chariot throne. And the chariot throne had wheels because it's going with him to, into battle. And he's showing his judgment, his justice, his wrath as he's on the move, right? 
Some of, uh, what is it, the Chronicles of Narnia said, Aslan's on the move, right? He's on the move. He's bringing his judgment upon the world. He's, he's bringing his will to bear upon all the nations of the world. And when it comes to bear, it's in hot anger against sin. It's in pure and righteous justice and judgment in, in every possible way. That, that's all seemingly what, what is being seen in this vision and nothing more. Just know that. Again, when, when, when you and I get to heaven, you're not going to see a throne that's on fire. It's symbolic. Okay? I don't know what you'll see of anything. I have no idea. When the new heavens and the new earth come down and, and, and we have a glorious renewed earth, uh, I, don't, I still don't know what you'll ever see if God shows himself in some sort of the, uh, theophonic form, burning bush, what have you. And there's always some sort of type of thing where eventually he will show something that's made to represent him, but you won't see the Father's face. You will see Jesus' face, right? Because he keeps his human form all his life. He is human as well as God. But in this particular case, we're just meant to see something that helps us to understand this king who is sitting on his throne, who is greater and older and wiser and more powerful and more righteous and just and everything else under the sun, this is who the one who is, who is judging all other things, right? Now, around this throne, verse 10, Daniel sees thousands upon thousands serving this king and then 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him to carry out his bidding in service and in judgment throughout the world. Now, I imagine that that would be extremely encouraging to Daniel if you think about it. Even though Daniel has three friends, it doesn't often picture him with them, does it? Does it not seem like Daniel's often fighting against the kings on his own? I mean, I imagine he, he would have felt lonely at times where he's the one being thrown into the lion's den seemingly by himself, right? Would make you think of the prophet Elijah. You remember Elijah crying out to God, I'm the only prophet left. I'm the only one that even seems like I'm seeking you, right? What does God say to him? I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But here, Daniel is seeing thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands who love the Lord, are worshiping him night and day, and serving him in whatever he says. They know that he is their Lord. It's an encouraging, very encouraging scene after seeing all these monstrous, nightmarish creatures. He's seeing, instead of that chaotic sea, same thing that John would later see with that placid sea in front of him and this holy throne that's on fire. All of this is, again, imagery to help us to understand something about who God is and what he's done, what he's doing. But then as soon as he sees this and all these people gathered around, just as the heavenly court is, is about to be called to order and the, the books are now open, as soon as Daniel hears the court officials say, hear ye, hear ye, the right honorable judge is now in session, right? As soon as he hears something like that, again, he's caught back to the previous vision where he was at the Mediterranean Sea. Somehow these two visions are combined, and now he's hearing the voice of that fourth beast, the horn that's coming out of it, and it's boasting loudly as he's in the heavenly courtroom. He's hearing this beast boast against God. And these two scenes are dichotomous. They, they, they just don't mesh whatsoever, right? As soon as he hears the blasphemies and the arrogant boasting of this creature, immediately the books are open, God proclaims his judgment, and that creature is 
destroyed in an instant. No delay, no court delays, no defense attorneys, no jury, no appeal, no bail bonds, immediate judgment. There's no reason to debate. There's no reason for a jury. God knows the thoughts. God knows the heart. God knows everything. And he's been waiting for this day to happen. And when he finally brings it about, it's done. No matter how much that horn that seems to be terrifying everyone in the world, God strikes him down in a second. Doesn't even have a conversation that as he's opening his mouth to speak, you're done. You're done. And it's over. Now, you ready to hear about the identity of that creature? Sorry, we're still not going to get to it yet. Because now something even better appears in his dream. Something that this creature can't even compare in a thousand years. While Daniel's still in the courtroom, another figure descends seemingly from the clouds above, if you will. It's hard to put all these imageries together. But now he sees this person that looks like a man. Now, this is very important because, again, it's not meant to be interpreted literally. He's not literally seeing a man. He sees someone who looks like a man in the same way that the other things looked like a lion or like a bear. You follow me? Still using descriptive imagery. He's not seeing a man. He's seeing something that looks like a man. And all of a sudden, we see that uh, Daniel sees this person coming down from the clouds, if you will, into the courtroom of the heavenly courtroom. Now, if you know Scripture well enough, Old Testament, you you know that God is the only person who rides on the clouds. Let me say it very plain. Psalm 104, verse 3 is just one example among many. The psalmist says, the Lord makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So when we see this figure descending from the clouds into this court chamber, you would automatically think, well, this is God. However, we just saw this other vision of the Ancient of Days. We're like, well, well, that's God. So, and now we're seeing that one is relating to the other somehow, and it's not the same person. We've got two figures that seemingly, symbolically, are meant to represent God. Now, as New Testament Christians, we can figure this out, right? not overly complicated Uh, but nevertheless Daniel keep in mind Daniel's not fully understanding what's going on here he still doesn't even know who the Medes and the Persians are that are coming you know in a few years right so he's missing quite a bit of the scene that, that we have but again the most important part about this is this this king and we'll find out that he is a king is different from all the other kings and their kingdoms because they're all coming up out of the sea out of the earth this one's coming down from above He's not like the other kings. He's not a king on the earth. He's coming from somewhere else, right? And yet, this figure who is, stands opposite to the Ancient of Days also seems to be God. Uh, quite a bit of dilemma for the Pharisees in the New, in the New Testament. But when, when this Son of Man presents himself before the Ancient of Days, verse 14, Daniel says, He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Again, doesn't come out and say that he's a king, but it's pretty obvious if he's giving all this, 
He's inheriting kingdoms, so obviously he's the king. And again, we know this is Christ. We know this from a thousand different ways probably, but if you just go to the Gospels alone, all four Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself again and again and again as what? The Son of Man. Why does he keep using this term again and again and again? Because Daniel sees one who looks like the Son of Man. 29 times in the Matthew's Gospel, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Pharisees are debating this all throughout the time that uh, Jesus is walking the earth. He's telling them again and again, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. Uh, three, I'll give you three examples just in, in Matthew, but you can do this in any gospel. Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus tells the disciples he's going away, but then he says the Son of Man is, is coming, though. The Son of Man is returning, if you will. And he's coming with his angels in the glory of his Father. Amen. Matthew 19, 28. He speaks of the place that the disciples will share with him in his kingdom. And he says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But the most important passage, I think, in the Gospel of Matthew, at least, Matthew 26, verse 64. There Jesus tells the high priest, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, if you will, he says, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And immediately, do you remember the response of the high priest, what he does? He rips his clothes and he cries out, blasphemy. Why is he doing that? Because he and every person in that room at that moment understands very clearly. He's referring to himself as this figure who's coming down from the clouds of heaven and is believed to be God. No matter what the Jehovah's Witnesses tell you, Jesus is claiming to be God without any uncertainty here whatsoever. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers, they all know it. That's why they want to condemn him for falsely calling himself God. Uh, the interesting thing about this particular moment, though, is that, is that the place and the setting of this is that Jesus at this moment is the subject of a mockery of a trial, Right? And they're all threatening to condemn him to death. And that's when he says to them in so many terms, just, just wait, the tables are about to be turned. You're all going to stand before me as I sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven in power to bring forth God's pure, righteous judgment that no one can hide from. He's making it ever so plain who he is. Now, again, the hard part is Parts of this vision are, are conflated, right? So, meaning time-wise, there's a lot going on here that seemingly would maybe from Daniel's perspective and certainly from ours look like it would happen in a very short period of time, perhaps. Think of it this way. When Daniel is seeing the four creatures come up out of the sea, he sees in an instant one come up and then another and then another. I mean, it's all a very short time period here and a very short dream. But what, what is being described in that first part of the dream is over a span of well over 500 years. So none of this is going to happen immediately, and Daniel's going to be dead long before most of this ever comes to pass. But in the same way, in the second part of the vision, when the Son of Man receives the kingdom, 
it seems to be separate from the idea of him coming to judge the world coming on the clouds, right? But yet you're seeing these two things together. I've, I've used this illustration a number of times, and I, I, you'll have to bear with me because I, I know you've heard it from me if you've been here at all. But to me, it's just the perfect illustration. You see three mountains in the distance, right? They all seem to be right beside each other. But then you draw closer, and one of them is much closer to you than the other two. Right? And then the third one is much farther away than the second. You have no concept until you actually get up to that first mountain. You can see where these things actually stand. When Daniel is seeing all this, he's seeing it all in one short dream. But it's actually describing a, a long period of time. And, and we know this because when the Son of Man first comes before the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom, and he's given the dominion and authority and the glory, all of this, right? When does that happen? Before we get to the end of Matthew. How do I know that? Well, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you know the verse very well. It has to do with evangelism, right? What does Jesus say before he sends them out to go into all the nations? All authority has already been given to me. It's all mine. I've received the dominion and the glory. It's all mine. Which is why, even now, where does Jesus sit? At the right-hand side of the Father, in heaven, on his throne. He's already received all of this dominion, the glory, power, all of it, right? But has he judged the nations? Doesn't seem like it, right? Uh, he certainly judged them at different times throughout the history of the world, different ways. But as far as describing this concept of him coming and, and bringing judgment over all the nations of the world, doesn't seem like that day has come. And so as a result, even though it might be easy for us to interpret parts of this vision, because we have so much history as a guide to help us, we can go back and we can look and see, okay, well, I think this looks like this is this kingdom and this is this kingdom. And even what I'm telling you is most of it is not, not given us here, but we know from history this, this seems to be the way it's lining up here. The trajectory is the same. But once we get past that time, past the time of the Roman Empire, past the time of Christ, it, it's definitely going to be much harder for us because now when did this happen? When does this happen? When will it happen? Uh, we, we don't have those answers. We have to get to the book of Revelation to see a little bit more. You'll have to wait for that, though. We're not there yet. But in the meantime, thankfully, Daniel has someone to help interpret what he does see. And again, we said it was strange because Daniel, who is the interpreter of dreams, always interpreting the dreams of kings, now needs someone to interpret his own dreams because he can't understand them. But it actually makes sense given the fact that every time Daniel did interpret one of the king's dreams, he said he couldn't do it. He said only God can. God was the one who was giving him the interpretation. So now in the same way God is giving the angels, the angels are speaking to him, helping to reveal some of the meaning of this passage. And so Daniel asked one of these holy ones, um, what is the meaning of these four beasts? And that's when uh, the angel tells him it's representing the four kingdoms. We've already explained that, so I won't go over that again. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he's saying that in addition to that, though, in the second part of the vision, he's helping Daniel to see that after these four kingdoms come, and even as scary as they seem to be, he says that the saints of God are going to receive the kingdom and they're going to possess it forever. Again, this is where the encouragement comes in, in the dream. This is the aspect of, we, last week we called it theodicy, which basically means a defending of God's righteousness, a, a defending of God's judgment. Why has God not brought judgment upon the wicked? Because there's a day that's still coming in which that comes to pass. But in the meantime, he's still working out his perfect plan. So what do these latter visions of God, and particularly this Son of Man, have to do with the saints of God reigning? So this is the main point. 
Again, if you look at the title of the sermon, the worn out saints shall reign. What does this vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man have to do with that? Well, to get to that, now we should probably discuss the identity of the fourth beast and the little horn. Although they play a very minor role, both in the dream as well as in world history, uh, Daniel is asking particularly about them so he can understand a little bit more. And so, again, I won't repeat the description of the last beast. That was described in verses 19 and 20. But if you look ahead to verse 23 and 24, there Daniel's told that the fourth beast represents a fourth kingdom that will devour the whole earth and will break it to pieces. Now, um, like I said, the first three beasts, I think, are pretty easy for most evangelical commentators to agree on. We've mentioned to you already the meaning. The fourth kingdom, most evangelicals would still say that it represents the Roman Empire. Again, I mentioned to you earlier on in the series, some would say it represents the Greeks, going back a, a number of years. Most would say it represents the Roman Empire, with perhaps the first king representing either Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar, and then the Caesars who come after those. Now, but the, the disagreement lies in this. Who are the ten kings? What are their names? I don't know. Um, I'm sure many of you have probably heard many teachings telling you all their names, but I can tell you, having researched this throughout different historical eras of the church, every, there's a thousand different options for this, right? Uh, there is no... Um, authorized list of these are the kings and who they represent all right so it could simply just represent many of the caesars who came after julius caesar right um, some would say that maybe it represents the barbarian tribes that attacked uh, the roman empire and then started their own kingdom do you follow me so that's certainly an option i don't know uh, we're not given a definitive answer so I, I really i would have a hard time without having more information to go by to tell you why well, I, I definitely think it means this but but i also warned you last week and uh, before, that in apocalyptic literature, even the numbers themselves can be symbolic. So it doesn't necessarily have to represent 10 particular people. The number 10 itself can represent just the sense of wholeness, fullness, uh, the sense of peace, if you will. The same thing for three. Both 10 and three are good numbers in Scripture, if you will. But now this one horn is coming and disrupting the peace of the kingdom. Right? In fact, if you wanted to say that the whole Roman Empire is represented by these ten kings, what is the statement that's often known with the Roman Empire? Pax Romana? Roman peace. But now some king is coming and is going to disrupt all of this, right? Uh, it, it could mean something like that. But again, uh, what is that figure and, and what's his name? I can't tell you for sure. Again, if you look at throughout history, the, the beauty about knowing something about church history is to be able to see how everybody else interpreted this for the last 2,000 years. And you'd be surprised what they've come up with. You realize that the, 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 the majority position throughout at least, I'd say, the last five, well, no, even more than that now, um, let's just say last several hundred years, the majority position of who this king is, you want to guess? The Pope. But the Pope's not a king. Why would they say that? We'll get to that in a minute. You know what the second majority position is? Muhammad. The prophet. The false prophet. Those are, if you look historically, those are the two people that they think that this one horn that has come up and, and represented these other things. So if you're looking for an historical figure and you say it's one of those two guys, you got history on your side. Right? But many other people have come up with other things since then. 
Uh, like I said, uh, when I started in ministry, I had a number of people who were saying that it was Bill Clinton. <laughs> I assured them it was probably Hillary. <laughs> we were both wrong, right? But, but I, I say this to you, though, because depending upon what's going on in the world at this time, you'll find another people say, what well, has to be this? All I can tell you, again, I was a history major long before I ever studied scripture for a living, if you will. And I can tell you, People have been doing this for thousands of years. Be very careful about trying to say, you know who this person is. You know who these particular people are. I don't know for sure. I'm giving you uh, guesses, if you will. But here's why I'm giving you guesses. Because I, I think, personally, the horn that is on this fourth creature is a symbolic figure that represents more than one person. And you see the face of this one person again and again and again throughout history. So I don't, I'm not saying that uh, the reformers were wrong or that the... You know, the medieval theologians were wrong or, or that, you know, the people that have come since the Enlightenment are wrong. I think they may all have been right, but they're just seeing different faces of the same creature. Does that make sense? Again, you can totally disagree with me. I'm not going to have a hissy about this whatsoever. But at the same time, if you think about it, scripturally speaking, the person that's overcoming these things, it, it seems very plain, um, is, is, has lots of power, is boasting greatly and seems to be the the end of the matter if you will at least in some ways uh, as we look in the new testament uh, again the same type of creature or being would often be in reference to the antichrist but if you remember first john two eighteen, it's a very important passage when we we study the end times the apostle says this it is the last hour as you have heard the antichrist is coming so now what many antichrists have come He's saying very plainly, if you're looking for one particular person, one particular creature, if you're looking for the devil himself, you probably haven't found him, but you've seen a lot of his faces in a lot of different ways throughout the generations, throughout time. I mean, again, historically speaking, I can tell you, you know, many, many figures that more than I can count on my fingers of people who have hated the church, hated God, and tried to obliterate it altogether. It's happened again and again. And again, and what I find interesting is that in Revelation chapter 13, uh, when we get there, remember this passage in Daniel because it's going to come in very helpfully. There John sees a beast coming out of a sea, right? And when he sees this, instead of seeing a lion or a bear or a leopard or whatever, he sees one creature who has all of these attributes, all of these aspects. So what does he mean by that? Well, in a sense, he's basically saying all of these evil kings that have been attacking the nations throughout the world, if you want to see who the creature is behind them all, he's about to be unveiled. Again, symbolically speaking here, right? Um, the passage that we read, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, did that, did that passage seem familiar to you at all? Like as if we read it last week? Just checking same, the reason why we read it again, because we were supposed to get that far last week, never did, but basically it's in reference again to this man of lawlessness. Who is this man of lawlessness? Again, I can't point out to one particular individual, but the spirit of lawlessness has existed in every generation. There are figures who come up and act like the beast that's coming out of the sea, right? And it's a sinister figure that's restrained, at least in some sense now, but yet he has many who have his spirit within him that are coming out. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to see, and this is just one other aspect of it. Um, so I won't be here this next Sunday, but the very next Sunday will be in Daniel chapter 8. 
And there we're going to talk about a ram and a goat. And on that goat, there's another little horn. But it's not the same little horn that you see in this passage. But they share a lot of things in common. Their attributes are very, very similar. There's a spirit that they share. That's the point I'm trying to make here is I can't point out to you exactly who this horn is and who the horn in chapter 8 will be, but I can tell you exactly, well, actually, chapter 8, I think, is a little bit more evidence. It actually, in chapter 8, Gabriel, the angel, actually tells him who the ram represents, who the goat represents, tells him the actual kingdoms. In this chapter, we're not given that, so we're doing a lot more guesswork because we're not given that information. Uh, but anyway, the comfort, I, w- I want to get to that because I, I can't, I wish I could tell you all the answers to this, and I don't know, and I've read more than I care to admit, and I still don't know, and I apologize. <laughs> but I don't think that we're meant to know all the specifics. But his point behind this, I, I'm hoping that we can all agree on at least. And it, it's this, not only has God stirred up the waters, he's the one who has raised up these evil kings to carry out even his will, um, it's not some secret coup against God. God's sitting on his throne, undisturbed by all these evil rebels, if you will. But know, too, that now his son sits beside him, having conquered sin, death, the grave, has, having already received the dominion and the kingdom and the glory eternally, waiting for his enemies all to be put at his feet, right? In addition to that, the part that is meant to be encouraging to Daniel and the people of his time knowing that they're about to experience more suffering and more prolonged years of being under evil men. This is what the message is to Daniel. That after the saints have suffered all of this and been persecuted in many generations, when the Son of Man finally comes on the clouds of heaven in judgment, all of a sudden, thrones will appear. Not just one throne, not just two, many thrones will appear. Why are all these thrones appearing in this room? What's the point of this? Well, the New Testament gives us a little bit of insight into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says this, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Next verse, he says, do you not know that we're even to judge angels? Why are all these thrones appearing? Because he's saying, There's going to come a time when you, just like Jesus, are being the subject of a mock trial and being persecuted unjustly. God will show forth his faithfulness to his people who have endured through all that. They will share with him in that judgment. Where each one of us will be sitting on a throne judging the nations. Again, symbolically speaking, again, there are not going to be a billion thrones everywhere, but the point is you share in that judgment. You share in that righteous, pure judgment. As bleak as the immediate future might seem to some of you, and at times seems to me, and in the sense that we're all living in what appear to be dark days, evil days, the country, especially in, in the United States, again, the world is much bigger than the United States, but from what we see it from here, it just looks like every day. I mean, how, how worse can it get, right? And yet, even in the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of that misery, and in the midst of that arrogant boasting that we hear more and more often on the news and in every other aspect of our society, in a second, in an instant, God says, judgment, and it's done. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ are sitting in the judgment 
throne with him, agreeing, saying, Amen, Lord Jesus. Finally, Amen, Lord Jesus. So the, the message is simply this, no matter how great these horns seem to be in our eyes, what does the Scripture continue to call them? They're little horns. They may think they're big. They may think that they're huge, arrogantly boasting. In a second, they're gone. No trial, no appeals, just peace. Righteousness reigns forever and ever. Where does your hope lie? In Christ, if it lies in him, you will share in all of this and so much more. It's a guarantee, it's a certainty that the worn-out saints shall reign with Christ forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we don't understand all these things, and I'm sure there, there are a number of things that people probably have disagreed with me on. Uh, I pray that... Uh, uh, anything that I have said in error, if it confused the saints in any way, Lord, you would, um, through your spirit, continue to show them the truth. But I do pray, Father, that in the highlights of this message that I think that Daniel was meant to receive, that what we were meant to receive, is that, yes, there are going to be dark days, and even dark days in ahead of us, but we know that already you sit on your throne. Already it's a, it's a, it's a guaranteed deal here. That even what all the evil forces do in this world can only do at your behest, at your bidding. And that you can take them out in a minute. Lord, help us not to be afraid of what men can do. But be afraid of the one who can throw both body and soul into hell forever. Lord, help us to give fear and reverence and love and respect and patience and faithfulness to the king who has died in our place. Lord, help us to, to trust that King all the days of our life and to stand beside Him, knowing that He stands for us on that final day, we pray.